number one. Deuteronomy 5, verse number This is terrible. Begin with verse number one. And Moses called all of Israel and said unto them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your ears this day, that you may learn them and keep and do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us who are all of us here alive this day. The Lord talked with you face to face in the mount out of the midst of fire. Let's look at verse number six. I'm the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the waters beneath the earth. Let's come to verse 11. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee. Six days thou shalt labor and do all thy work. Look at verse 16. Honor thy father and thy mother as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee. that Thy days may be prolonged and that it may go well with thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill. Neither shalt thou commit adultery, neither shalt thou steal, neither shalt thou bear false witness against thy neighbor, neither shalt thou desire thy neighbor's wife, neither shalt thou covet thy neighbor's house, his field, or his manservant, or his maidservant, his ox, or his ass, or anything that is thy neighbor's. The Ten Commandments. Now in Hebrew, the Ten Commandments are called ten words. Ten words, ten specific words that God gave to the children of Israel. As you know, they had been slaves in Egypt. But here God comes and God redeems them out of Egypt in order to bring them into a special relationship, to make them a special chosen people to him. The only way to change the mentality that they've had for four centuries in Egypt is to give them commandments that help them to understand what God is for and what God is against. Now, the Ten Commandments back in the 60s were removed, along with Scripture, from the public school system. And it was because of a number of court cases. People didn't like the idea of religion being taught to people in school, and so the court said... It was legitimate for them to remove it from the schools. But of course, in taking the Ten Commandments out of school, we have placed inside the schools many things that are wicked. But if these Ten Commandments teach us anything, it teaches the character of God. God's temperament, God's mentality is revealed in these commandments. The reason they're commemorating them is to keep alive the memory of the Lord who has given them these words. Remember, it was on a mountain in Exodus chapter 20. The scripture says the mountain burned with fire and the earth did quake. And the voice of God said to Moses, come to the top of the hill. When Moses came to the top, the Lord himself spoke to Moses in the fire, gave him the tablets of stone. The very finger of God put it all together. 
Now he says that this land of Egypt was a house of bondage. That means that they had been slaves to the Egyptians. The Egyptians were slaves to Egyptian deities. They had a culture that was unlike the Israelite culture. In ancient Egypt, it was not uncommon to find a brother and a sister married. It was not uncommon to find that the Pharaoh was married to his siblings. If you've ever seen the hieroglyphics and some of the pictures on some of the walls of the monuments in Egypt, you've seen uh, animal heads on human bodies. The kinds of gods that they worshipped were, were distinct. And Moses was learned in the wisdom of all the Egyptians, although he was a Hebrew child. So God having brought them out into the desert, And having delivered them by mighty strong hand, parting the Red Sea, supernatural miracles taking place. He gives them that first commandment. You can't have any other gods before me. Now some people take that little phrase before me. And they assume that what God is saying. Is that you can worship all kinds of gods. But God has to be first. They take that word before as a word of rank. That's not what it's talking about. In the Hebrew, when it says you're not to have any gods before the Lord, that is to say in his presence. In his presence. If you're the temple of God, you're a believer, God dwells in your heart. But then you have to ask the other question, if you go into the presence of the Lord, where can you go on this earth where you are outside of the presence of the Lord? David the psalmist said, if I take the wings of the morning and fly away, I'm in the presence of God. He said, if I made my bed in the depths of the grave or hell, behold, God is there. So that first commandment is very plain. If you're going to serve God and have him as your Lord and your master, there can be no other God in your heart. There can be no room for any other God. This is not a situation where God says to the Israelites, this is pluralism and relativism. All religions are the same. There's one God, the living God. Now, there are people who will tell you that serving God and being a Christian is no different than a person who's at the top of a mountain, And God is down in the valley, and the only way we can get to him is you take a foot trail and make your way down there to where he is. And along the side of the mountain, there are various foot trails, and all of these foot trails represent different religions. So it doesn't really matter what religion you take, all of the foot trails are going to take you down into the valley. That's a bad analogy. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The book of Acts says, there's no other name given among men under the heaven whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus. So even our friends who are sincere in their beliefs, but yet Buddhists, Muslim, call themselves atheists. Whatever trail they're on, they'll never find God because the scripture is very plain that you can have no other God before me. He goes on to say that you are not supposed to even have any graven images of God. 
pictures, monuments, statues. Be very careful. I realize we live in a world that is very artsy. This is not saying at all in this scripture that God is opposed to artistic talents. He's not opposed to that at all. What God is opposed to is a person drawing some caricature of God and then acting as though that picture that they have drawn to represent God is actually God. And you bowing yourself to that. I'll tell you again because it needs to be reiterated. When I lived in Japan as a Marine, I went to a Korean church one time for an all-night prayer meeting. Somewhere in the middle of the night, I happened to lift my head and look up, and up on the wall there's a picture of Jesus. He's dressed like an Asian person. He's got a kimono on. He's standing in what looks like a rice field, some animals around him, and he's got slanted eyes. They wanted a God that looked like them. I come back to the States, pick up one of those big Bibles, the big hertail Bibles, thick Bibles. Open it up, flip through the pages, and you've got images and pictures of Jesus. He looks like he's a Swede, or he's from Denmark, possibly from Finland, with blonde hair coming down to his shoulders, and he's surrounded by all of these beautiful little kids, and, and even at Grandma's house, there was a picture of Jesus on the wall there. You could see him in the Bible every time he opened it. I was preaching down in Jacksonville, North Carolina at a Baptist church one time, came out of the pastor's office, went up into the pulpit. That pulpit was tall. I mean, it was high way up there so that when you took the seven or eight steps, you were up on top looking down on all of these people. I always did like that pulpit. Yeah, yeah. But, but when I got up in the pulpit, before I turned and faced the people, up here behind me was a big portrait of Jesus. It had to be six to eight feet tall, three or four feet wide. And Jesus, he was a black man wearing a dashiki with an afro and a pick sticking out of it. And he was surrounded by all of these black sheep. I said, wow. Well, two decades ago, before I came to Nebraska, I was working with Wycliffe Bible translators. They put me in a home of some Peruvian people. They were Quechuan Indians that spoke that language plus Spanish. And in that family, they were Catholic. So where my bedroom was, I had to come down a long hallway through a very large living room, down another hallway, making a U that took me to the kitchen. And just before you got to the kitchen, the mother, who was a devout Catholic, she had a shrine there, and it had a picture, one of those pictures of Jesus with that, that heart that looks like it's beating real big. And this, this picture had Jesus in a poncho, a sombrero, balmy kind of colored skin, and a very skin-thin mustache. I realized then, everybody wants a God that looks like them. Yeah. Here's what the Lord said. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, 
Thou shalt not make any kind of graven image. What is a graven image? That's something that you take the time to fashion with your own hands. None of us have seen God in the flesh. We don't know what he looks like. None of the pictures of Jesus in the gospel tell us anything about his physical, his physical descriptions. Only description you have is Revelation chapter 1. It says he's in a robe. It says his feet were like fine burnished brass. It talks about his eyes being like that of fire. It doesn't give you a whole lot to go on. There's a reason for that. If you honestly begin to believe that a certain picture or image is your God, then you will carry that picture or that image from room to room, from place to place with you like it is a lucky charm. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, nor make any graven images. The Lord goes so far in verse 11 to tell them you are not to take the name of the Lord in vain. In vain. Two words. Repeat those with me. In vain. We're not to take the name of the Lord in vain. Now that very could, very well could be a way of taking God's name and using it as a substitution for a cuss word, but I like to believe we all know better than that. The name of the Lord is a holy name. We're not supposed to use it as a substitute for swearing at all. This name is very important. The scripture says not to take it in vain at all. God won't hold them guiltless who does that. So when they came out of Egypt and they became followers of the Lord, they became children of God. A chosen generation, special people to take that name to themselves, to take the name of Yahweh and a follower of Jehovah to themselves. They are to live in accordance with that name. You wives, you did that when you married your husband. You took his name. In taking that name, making a covenant, front of witnesses, you pledged your love and fidelity to that, that husband of yours. But, but should you ever step out of that marital relationship or should you ever begin to act in a way that is not in conformity with the name that you have embraced wholeheartedly, you've taken it in vain. The Bible says you don't want to do that. Now, there, there are people, of course, who will attempt to use the name of the Lord as a promise or an oath or by swearing. You know, they, They'll say things like this. You know, little kids do it. You say, I, are, you, are you telling me the truth? You know, with kids, I triple dog dare you to do something. There's, there's always something like that. And then, a, then another kid will say, look, I am telling you the truth. I promise, I swear, I swear by the name of the Lord. I swear on grandma's grave that I'm telling you the truth. Now You know as well as I do that using grandma's grave as a method of promising or swearing doesn't make any sense because the grave has no ability to confirm or deny what you're saying. It's not as though grandma's going to come back from the grave and grab you by the ankle and say, you dirty little liar, you, you better stop it. It doesn't happen. 
But when we stand and we use the name of the Lord, we do need to know that name is powerful. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, the scripture says. We use the name of the Lord not to substitute it for a cuss word. It's not a fill-in word. That word is the name of the Lord is holy and we use it only when we're talking with people about God. Referencing God. He says that you ought to honor the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Six days you should work. Now everybody needs a time of rest. That's true. And the Sabbath day goes back to Genesis chapter 2. First three verses. When God took that day and hallowed it, made it sacred, he rested from all his labors on that day. Very important day. And I think every Christian ought to have time that they set aside for God. There's nothing wrong with that Sabbath day being a holy day. You need time for your body to rest. You can be involved with people who will work you seven days a week because you're chasing that dollar. But let's not forget what God said to the children of Israel. Remember, you once were Egyptian slaves. That's what he said to them in these verses in verse 15. When you were a slave in Egypt, they worked you all the time. But now you're free. And and rather than laboring for Pharaoh and enriching him, you have a day of rest that is commanded to you. That's what he said. Now, there might have been a time in your life where you worked so many hours, you wish, wish you did have some time off. But now God's put you in a position where you have the time. Enjoy it. Nothing wrong with that. Well, let's not go into bondage over this. You can talk to people who are Seventh-day Adventists and other people who call themselves Christians but yet still try to keep the law, and they'll tell you if you don't, if you go to church on Sunday, they'll say you're out of the will of God. You should only go to church on Saturday. And on that day, you should not do anything. Don't allow people to put you in bondage. Paul said in the book of Romans that one man esteems one day, another man esteems another day. Everybody needs a day of rest. But what about our people who work in the medical field? Our police people, firemen, people that have other jobs that require them to be at work on a weekend or even on the Sabbath. Now, there was a time where here in America, and maybe even here in Nebraska, uh, these states operated with blue laws. So what's a blue law? Blue law meant that on Sunday, your places of business were closed. The only restaurants that were open were attached to hotels to feed those who were traveling. But your liquor stores and your bars and saloons and stuff like that, not on the Lord's Day they weren't open, not on the Sabbath day. But you know as well as I do today that the Sabbath day is one of the most busy days on the planet because of shopping. We've turned away from a basic principle that God gave. Now returning to what I said about a day. Don't go into bondage about the day. You can worship God on any day of the week. You can worship God any time of the week. Paul said one man takes one day, another man takes another day. I had a seven-day Adventist one time try to tell me that since I was having service on Sunday, I was misleading all of the people that I pastor. He said, you've led them all to take the mark of the beast from Revelation. 
because you guys are going to church on Sunday. I said, well, what, what, what difference does a day make? I said, when I, lived in, when I lived in Saudi Arabia, the weekend in the Middle East is Thursday and Friday. So we went to church on Friday. I said, when I lived in Israel, we went to church on Saturday morning. I said, here in America, we go to church on Sunday. I said, I'm in church Sunday morning. I'm in church Sunday night. I said, Monday night, I lead a Bible study in Friend. Tuesday night, I lead a Bible study in Hebron. Uh, Wednesday night, I lead a Bible study in Red Cloud. Do you really think God is angry with me being in church this often? The point is, some people become so legalistic in their application of Scripture that they forget that it's not about the Sabbath, it's about a person. They even came to Jesus one time and Jesus healed a man. They said, how, how, how can you heal somebody on the Sabbath day? This six days to do good things. You don't help anybody on the Sabbath day. Leave these sick people in their sickness. Don't bother them. Even Jesus said, you good folks, if you have a donkey that falls in a hole on the Sabbath day, you don't leave them in there for 24 hours. You go in there and you get them out on the Sabbath day. And if I want to lay my hands on some woman whose back is crooked and bring healing to her, I can do it. You always remember that Sabbath is a day of rest for man. But man is more important than that day. God has given us his son. His son is the Sabbath. So when we think about our role today as Christians, the only thing I can say is make sure you have some time that you set aside to rest and relax. Don't work yourself so hard to where you just can't even function anymore. But then he gives them the command that they should honor their parents. Now in this verse 16, it explicitly gives to you the design of that family. The father and the mother. The husband and the wife. Honor your mother and father. This is the preservation of family and the preservation of society. To show regard, to show respect for. You ever been to a football game or a basketball game or a track event out here and heard teenagers using cuss words in the presence of grandparents? I have. I've seen young people using language that is absolutely terrible and, and I'll be honest, even as a pastor, even as a Christian, I've wanted to reach out and strangle them. How in the world can you talk like this around adults? You see, Scripture is very plain. Honor your mother and your father. Okay, well, if, if, if we have honor and respect that is taught in the home, then this very same thing is going to go into society. A child that doesn't respect his mother or his father is probably not going to respect law enforcement officials, school teachers, their neighbors, or somebody else's parents or grandparents or great-grandparents that are elderly. When you show honor to the older people or show honor to your parents, you are essentially saying to God, I recognize the authority position that you put them in, and it's my role to be submitted to that. Honor a mother and father. 
A child comes into this world and grows into a point and place of submission because they learn by virtue of their mother and father being their caretaker that they're responsible and accountable to them. Don't ever cuss your mother out, your dad out. Don't use the kind of language that would bring shame upon them. Honor your parents, grandparents, so that when you're in their presence, you're willing and ready to listen to the wisdom that they have to give. They've finally come to a point in their life where having made some mistakes, they can look back and impart wisdom. Close your mouth in the presence of your elders. Listen. There are a lot of things to learn. If we had more of that in society, maybe we'd have less people in jail. Maybe we'd have less drive-by shootings with teenagers. Maybe we'd have less gangs if moms and dads had children that respected them and honored them. But because we don't have a lot of that, we have trouble. How did your parents raise you? I'm from that generation that if you did get in trouble with, in school, you did get in trouble when you got home. Yes. In fact, my parents had a good relationship with all of my teachers. I'm certain all of my teachers had my parents' phone number on speed dial. Because when I was in elementary school, if the teacher said they didn't want anybody talking, I was the one still talking. If they said they didn't want anybody to be outside at recess after a particular time and the teacher was calling everybody in, I was the one they were out there chasing around trying to get to come back in. However, they knew if they made a phone call that things would change, if not forever, certainly for a season. That's why when they'd call that house, I'd sit there on top of that telephone. My mom and dad always knew I was, trouble was about to come if I was just sitting and wouldn't leave the telephone. Because I'd, I'd stay up in the room and that telephone ring, I'd pick it up on the first ring. Hello, how are you doing, Sutton residents? Well, hello, Daryl. Could I speak to Mrs. Sutton? Mama's not here right now. But if you call back tomorrow, then I'd hear my mother on the other line. And she, she just simply said, Daryl, hang that phone up. And, of course, by the time they got off the telephone and the teacher was kind and polite with all the things that she said to my mom, my mom came up into the room and she was unkind and impolite with the way she handled me. <laughs> oh, no doubt about it. I wish sometimes that I, I could have come up in one of those households where the, the mother and father didn't believe in a raise in their voice and they didn't believe in... Um, they didn't believe in the use of the rod, and, and they just believed in telling a child to stand in the corner. I'm going to take your iPad from you. You just stand over there in that corner and face that wall, and you just think about what you've done. I'm telling you, if you ever would have saw me standing in a corner, it would have only been because my backside was so warm I couldn't sit down. That would have been the only reason. That little mama of mine who came out here one time, very slim but tall, statuesque and regal lady, if ever she got angry, she had a way of dealing with us, you know. Three boys in the house, daddy knew if he didn't run the house, we'd run them out of there. 
So he ran the house. And he ran it like a strong man. I can tell you there's never been a time in my life I did not respect and honor my mother and my father. Even though we weren't raised as Christians. We were sinners. But I had nothing but respect for anybody that could raise three kids to adulthood on the east side of Cleveland, Ohio. With all the stuff we were dealing with. Gangs and drugs. All of that. Mama and them made sure I wasn't going to be part of any of that. Well, Pastor, what do you do if you have a, a parent that's not honorable? How do I honor a mother or a father that I have and they're not honorable? Well, if they're not making you sin, you can still show them respect, some kind of respect. The Old Testament says that a parent should not prostitute his or her daughter. Quite naturally, if you had somebody in a circumstance like that, it would be impossible to honor a mom and dad. If your parent is not abusing you, then quite naturally you're going to be able to honor them, respect them. It's a two-way street. The scripture says in the book of Colossians, parents, provoke not your children to wrath. You want to be honored by your kids. Don't produce in them the kind of anger and hostility that would cause them to withhold honor from you. We'll just look at two more. The sixth commandment here, thou shalt not kill. We can also say thou shalt not murder. Sometimes kill seems to be too broad. Now this has to do with the sanctity of life, the preservation of one-on-one relationships. Governor of Pennsylvania, one of the governors of Pennsylvania, one time vetoed a bill passed by the legislature because he said they wanted to reinstate the death penalty and he said it's unscriptural to have the death penalty because of what the Bible says. All he would have had to do was read a couple of chapters after having read in the Ten Commandments and he would have discovered also that the penal code permitted capital punishment. It said if a man was a rancher and he had oxen, said if he knew that in his herd there was an ox that was constantly going after people, trying to attack people. He was to corral him and make sure he didn't get out. But if that ox got out and with his horns gored someone to death, the scripture says they were to take that ox and stone the ox and then take the owner and put him also to death. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about one-on-one relations when someone offends you or makes you mad. You don't have the right, nor do you have the privilege from God to just go out and arbitrarily take someone's life. The book of Romans does say that the magistrate, that the government bears not the sword in vain. And if the government deems that so-and-so is a serial killer and murdered 45 people and he's deserving of death, the government according to scripture, has the right to say that. He said, Pastor, I don't like that. I would advocate on behalf of the serial killer that he get life in prison. And I always say, of course you would, because you didn't lose six people out of your family. But if it had been your mom, your daughter, brutally killed, I guarantee you wouldn't be out there marching in front of the courthouse with a placard that says, let him go. Let them go. 
Scripture says in Genesis, if a man shed somebody's blood, that man's blood will be shed. That was before the law of Moses. Thou shalt not kill. You can't just go out on your own and just kill people because you don't like them, murder people that you don't like. That's what God's talking about. But this has implications also for abortion, euthanasia. How do we handle this when it comes to war? Let's take abortion. Abortion is the taking of the life of a child that's yet in the womb. Some people say, well, that baby isn't really a baby because the baby isn't here. But God says in the scriptures that it is him that causes the bones to grow in the womb of a mother. Ecclesiastes. It's God that said to Jeremiah, before I formed you, I formed you, author, creator, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. It's God that said to Rebekah, inside of you, you have twins, and those twins are two nations. That means God looked at each baby and saw that each baby would produce seed. He saw the progenitory of the seed. He saw the length of that seed through generations. Don't tell me God doesn't see that baby in the womb as a baby. We are not supposed to, on our own, take the life of a child. You say, well, what about the right of a woman to choose? Well, let's remember, it is the role of the state to protect life. It's the role of government to enforce Laws that keep people from destroying a belief in the sanctity of life. And when we advocate for something that does say you can arbitrarily on your own just go down the street to a Planned Parenthood and because you don't like the fact that you are pregnant, you can take the life of the child. You're certainly involved with this transgression. Thou shalt not kill. And I'll just briefly state that as sure as our nation condones the taking of the life of the innocent children, look at what's taking place now with our elderly. We're looking for ways to kill them too. Euthanasia, it's a Greek word, means good death. It's not so good if you don't want to go. But the idea that somebody... And look at you and say, I just don't want to see him or her suffer like that. And just, boop, hit the button, pull the plug, and then get rid of somebody like that. That's not always good. Now, I did have someone ask me a question one time. What happens in those cases where you've got somebody's in a vegetative state, somebody's in a very difficult time? How, how long is a person supposed to go on with all of that? My answer is always, that's a family affair. I'm, I'm not getting involved with giving people length of days and minutes and weeks. I'm simply telling you as a pastor, if you ever call for me to pray for you and your terminal with cancer, some kind of disease, when pastor comes, he's praying for life, that God heals you, praying that God does something great for you. I leave the other for the family. The last one that I'll just touch on and 
maybe pick up following weekend. I'm going to deal with that eighth one, skip the seventh one. I'll deal with that another time. The seventh one being don't commit adultery. I'll deal with this one real fast. Thou shalt not steal. Theft. This is the protection of property. God told Adam and Eve, you're the caretakers of the garden. He put everything within their care. After they sinned, they were taken outside of the garden. And everything they acquired in life, that became their private possession. Because the Lord says you shouldn't steal because the protection of your goods is the preservation of your wealth. Who am I to come to your house and see something that I want? And then say, well, they've got enough. So I'm going to take it. When you've worked hard for what you have. Who am I to come into your yard and see a bicycle that you have there for your kids and the kids didn't put it away and I just simply say, you know what, my daughter would like a bicycle. Why don't I take that one? Then I don't have to worry about paying for it. That wouldn't be God. Thou shalt not steal because what's in somebody else's possession belongs to them. And you should not try to take it and distribute it to somebody else or to yourself. We've all heard of the frontiersman Davy Crockett. What some people forget is that Davy Crockett also ran for Congress, served. During one of the periods when Congress was in session and he was up there in D.C., there was a home in D.C. that burned to the ground. Family lost everything. You know how terrible that would be. Personal possession, personal effects, everything gone just like that. Just standing there looking at it all smoldering. Congress was so moved by what had taken place in his family losing everything that they, they voted and, and they, they allocated some funds for the, for the rebuilding of this individual's house, this family's home. And of course there were tears and people were happy, the family was excited that, that they had done that. And, and Mr. Crockett went back to his his uh, place of residency, where he was from, to his constituents who voted him into Congress. He went back to one of his wealthiest patrons, and he asked him again, he said, I'm running for re-election, are you going to vote for me? And uh, that man in whose yard Mr. Crockett was standing said, no, I don't think I am. He said, why not? He said, well, you, you were up there, I saw in the paper, you guys were up there in, in D.C., somebody's house burned down, and you guys voted allocate some funds to go in to rebuild and repair the person's house. And he said, yeah. And he, and he said, I was, I was touched by all of that. But he said, no. He said, I'm, I'm not for I don't think you should have done that. And so why, why don't you think we should have given the person some money? And the man said to Mr. Crockett, because it wasn't yours to give. Wasn't yours to give. So there are a lot of people around here whose houses are burned down. He said, the right thing for you guys to do would have been for all of you to raise your hand and then, and then take up an offering amongst all the congressmen and take that money and give it to that family and help them, but, but, but not for you to take what's ours and then you just decide it goes to somebody else. wasn't yours to give. And David Crockett wrote an article in the newspaper called It's Not Ours to Give. And he talked about legal theft, where we take what is yours and give it to anybody that we want. Now here in America, these folks today, they on Capitol Hill don't want any monies to go to the printing of Bibles. They don't want any monies to go to the helping of any colleges that are Christian. They don't want any monies to go to 
any kind of a thing that promotes Jesus Christ in what they think is a very narrow sense. However, they don't mind taking Christian taxes, Christian monies, giving it to Planned Parenthood, and paying for sex changes of imprisoned folks in jail. But if we were to say something about it, they'd be angry. But here's what the scripture says. Thou shalt not steal. For you to take your hand, put it in somebody else's pocket, and say this is mine. But it's mine because you don't know that I've taken it. I don't think God would ever be pleased with that. God says he wants people to be industrious, productive. Why should my neighbor, your neighbor, get to receive all your money, my money, while they sit at home and watch Bold and Beautiful when they're able-bodied and healthy and they can be out there working as hard as you do for what you have? Thou shalt not steal. Let's stand. Ten Commandments, folks. We'll work on the next ones next time. Let's pray. Father, this nation of ours, it needs help. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ needs prayer. We need you to open the eyes of people across this nation to see the truth of the scriptures. Father, I pray that the Ten Commandments would be promoted one more time in this nation. I know, Lord, if we could get it back in the schools, that it would change the hearts and lives of many young people. God, even though it's not in the schools right now, we pray that you would help us to have it in our homes. Help us to read it on our jobs. Father, I know as we depart from this place, but never from your presence, you're going to be with us. We pray that you lead us and guide us, direct our steps, bring us all back here safely again as we renew our minds with the word of God. These things we pray for in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. Amen.